Well, there are certain realities that we all face in life that we just have to deal with. They're here. Some situations come upon us and we might not want to deal with them, but they're here. This could be something as serious as a cancer diagnosis or caring for an elderly parent. Or it could be as mundane as a car repair or the kid who's sick for the 15th time seemingly this week. What about the reality of Jesus? I mean, we're here celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. So the reality is that Jesus was born. What do we do with the reality of Jesus? I mean, Jesus was a historical person, a verifiable fact told to us not only in the Bible, but of course in extra-biblical historians. Even those outside the Bible say that Jesus existed and that he did some pretty outrageous things. So what do we do with that? The biggest question every human being has to answer is this. What are you going to do about Jesus Christ? The reality is that he exists so that we have to do something with him. It's that reality that's upon us, and we have to decide what to do with it. And what did Jesus come to do? And we're going to try to answer both of those questions this morning from the Gospel of Luke. If you're not there already, head over to Luke chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, we usually go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We have been making our way through the book of Romans, and we do that to expose the meaning of the Bible, and then the Holy Spirit does the work of applying that to our hearts. And so I don't come to the text with my own ideas and then look up 58 verses out of context to prove whatever idea of how to have a happier Monday or whatever my point might be. I come to the text... And the text has a meaning, and hopefully the main point of what we're doing here is the main point of that passage, and then the Holy Spirit applies that to our hearts. But we've been taking a break from our study in Romans and looking in Advent season, uh, the uh, various portraits of the Christ. Last week, we looked at the God who speaks. God has always spoken to his people. He continues to speak today. And in the Old Covenant, he spoke through the prophets. Now there's no more need for those prophets because we have the prophetic word right here. Spoken to us through Jesus Christ, God's Son. And God proclaims through the gospel the forgiveness of sins, we said, through the coming of Jesus Christ, which, of course, we celebrate here at Advent. We said last week that the coming of Jesus Christ declares that gospel in reality. And last week, or this week rather, we're going to look at the, the word of the Lord through the prophecy of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And he is written down for us, preserved here in the Word of God. So we're parachuting into the book of Luke. Luke, though not a direct eyewitness himself, he certainly had access to all of the eyewitnesses. He was indeed in direct contact with those who were the eyewitnesses. And therefore, the age-old question of, are the Gospels reliable, is a resounding yes. They are reliable. They are eyewitness testimony, written here and preserved for us. This aligns with Luke's introduction to his book, which we can read together. Luke chapter 1, look at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that you might have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. 
an eyewitness account carefully compiled through those eyewitness accounts, an orderly account. Why? So that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In other words, you might believe these things. You might know them. You might trust them. Dr. Luke carefully wrote all of these things down for us so that we might have certainty of who Jesus was and what he did. In Luke chapter 1, we have the birth of John the Baptist foretold, the one who will announce and prepare the way for the Messiah, revealed to be like Jesus, or revealed to be Jesus, the Son of God. And as John will exclaim, there he is, the Lamb who will take away the sin of the world. The Messiah was also foretold to be born in a very specific place, to a very specific family, miraculously to a virgin, an unmarried young woman. The angel of the Lord visits this young woman, Mary, to announce his miraculous birth. Luke chapter 1, verse 30 says this, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth... In her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her, whom, who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. In addition to this miraculous announcement concerning Mary herself, there's also a miraculous announcement for her cousin, her relative Elizabeth, that she will also have a child, soon to be John the Baptist. Upon hearing this news, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, a faithful priest in service of the house of the Lord, doesn't believe it and is struck mute, unable to speak because of his doubt. But once John the Baptist was born, once Zechariah actually saw that the prophecy did come true, he regained his ability to speak. And what he says about the Messiah is what I want to look at today. It's our final portrait of the Christ in this Advent season. Let's look at what Zechariah the priest then says in his prophecy in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us. And so Zechariah prophesies. In other words, he has a message from the Lord. Not only about his son, John the Baptist, but about Mary's son, about Jesus, the Messiah. And here we see exactly what we were talking about last week from Hebrews chapter 1. It said long ago that they spoke through the prophets. Here it is. They spoke through the prophet Zechariah. But it's also speaking to us here because here it is. We have it in our Bibles. And so that dual fulfillment of, of the Lord speaking in the Old Covenant through men. And now in the New Covenant, we have it written down for us right here. He's still speaking. Note that in verse 67, it tells us that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he spoke the word of God, God the Holy Spirit, filling Zechariah for him to speak the word of God, and now we read it in the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. So we're seeing both sides of this right here in our text. God's speaking to his people through the prophets today, or in the Old Covenant, and now today speaking through his word about the word 
Jesus, the Word made flesh. He's still speaking this morning, church, right here, right now, through his word in the church. So what does God say to Zechariah and to his people for us today? First, he blesses the Lord God of Israel. He literally speaks goodness, praise, glory. Verse 68 says, why? Because he's visited and redeemed his people. This is a consistent trajectory of both Old Testament and New Testament. God will redeem his people. That's the mission of God. He's redeeming God. His people. How is he going to do that? He goes on to say, look at verse 69. He says, it is, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So what's the deal with a horn? Horn of salvation. Isn't that the thing in your car to encourage someone in front of you to find their accelerator pedal? What, 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 what's the deal with a horn of salvation? Think of a horn, in other words, an animal horn. In other, in other words, antlers right, just got all the hunter's attention right now. Like the pursuit that you all have been on for the six, eight, ten plus pointers, right? They're, they're, they're a, a, a symbol of beauty and power, of strength. Think of the rack of antlers on an elk or a moose. Think of the massive horns on longhorn cattle or, or bighorn sheep. A horn symbolizes in the word of God power and strength. So the term horn of salvation, you can put those two things together and you can realize it is the power of salvation. In 2 Samuel 22, we read this. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. Psalm 18.2 tells us the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. We call upon that Lord for salvation. Luke tells us this horn of salvation has come from a specific family. His servant, David. It was well known that the Messiah would come through the line of Judah and be part of the family of David. Also in 2 Samuel, by the way, shameless plug for men's Bible study in 1 Samuel, 7 a.m. at the uh, diner next door. 2 Samuel this says this in chapter 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. How on earth can an earthly human being be king over something forever? It's impossible, unless you are the son of God. So it points to Jesus being the horn of salvation through the line of David. So if we put all this together, God raises up a horn of salvation, someone of unmatched strength and power to save, someone from a very specific family line from the house of David. And here's the first point. Jesus is strong enough to save. Jesus is strong enough to save. Some of you are singing that chart-topping worship song from the 90s, Mighty to Save. It's a dorky song, but it's a very good message. And Jesus is indeed mighty to save because he is the horn of salvation that God has raised up from the line of David. But interestingly enough, something else had horns in the Bible. In the Old Covenant, the altar of burnt offerings had four horns, one on each corner. And I have a little picture of that. You can see how on each side there's a, where the sacrifice would be in the middle. Then on each side is a horn 
symbolizing the power to save, the power to forgive sins. The, the priest began the sacrifice to purify the people by putting blood of the sacrifice on the horns to purify the altar. Sometimes people in need of mercy, remember Adonijah or others, would run into the temple and grab hold of the horns of the altar for mercy. I think you get the depths of the, the reference here, right? We see that Christ is our sacrifice. Where in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that would be an animal sacrifice that would temporarily take away sins, but animal sacrifices could never completely remove sins. It needed to be someone who is God. It needed to be someone who is perfect to completely take away sins. And so it points to Christ, the perfect horn of salvation. And second, we see again that Christ is certainly strong enough to save. He's the better and more perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect, sinless, eternal Son of God. And the continuity of the plan from Old Covenant to New Covenant, from Old Testament to New Testament, the horn of salvation, being in the Old Covenant, where they would sacrifice animals, and now we see the horn of salvation is Jesus Christ himself, the perfect sacrifice, who is truly strong enough to save. Indeed, today, if we run to Christ for salvation, he has mercy on our souls. Jesus is strong enough to save. Let's see what else Zechariah says in his, in his prophecy. Look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. If you're new to the Bible, maybe you're coming to church today for the first time in a long time. Maybe you're coming to satisfy a family member or whatever. Thank you, first of all, for coming. I used to be that guy, okay? I used to be a Christmas and Easter guy, so I feel you. I did it just so I could call mom on the way home and say, yeah, I did it. I went to church. Thank you for coming today, if that is you. I really appreciate that. Also, the roof did not fall in. You're good. It's good. But you also may not be aware, if you're new to the Bible, that Jesus fulfilled many, many, over 300, actually, Old Testament prophecies from these prophets of old that Zechariah mentions. The statistical probability of him fulfilling those prophecies is literally off the charts Indeed, new statistical research has, has shown that Jesus, if he were to fulfill just eight of those 300-plus prophecies, the statistical probability of that is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. I'm not a math parent. That's Mel's job. But that is 1 followed by 17 zeros. And to put that in perspective, the odds of you winning the Powerball lottery is 1 in 302 million. Six zeros as opposed to 17 zeros. That's just eight of those 300 prophecies. I want to look at just three of those prophecies. First, he had to be born of the seed of a woman. In Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy of the gospel on probably page three of your Bible, it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The prophecy of a woman having a child who will then defeat Satan. Where is this fulfilled? Welp, Mary gives it. Mary fulfills it with Jesus. It's also commented on in Galatians 4.4. 4. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus fulfilling this prophecy. One prophecy, another prophecy. The Messiah would be born into the tribe of Judah. Here's the prophecy again from Genesis. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and he shall be the obedience of the peoples. He's saying this, this Messiah who will come forever will be from the tribe of Judah. The blessing that was given to Judah. Where is this fulfilled? Well, we see it right here in our passage, of course. It was born from the line of David. We know that. And, of course, we see it in the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke. But third, we see that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Micah, chapter 5, says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, of ancient days. And we all know this was fulfilled as Jesus was physically born in Bethlehem. In Luke chapter 2, which we'll read later tonight. Look at Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all who went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, who is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in the manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. We see Jesus fulfilling just three of those prophecies. That's three out of 300 plus. Then, of course, we look, we look also at the facts of Jesus, the historically verifiable facts that Jesus existed, that he walked the earth, that he was crucified, and we know that he was resurrected and he ascended back to the Father. He actually did minister to people. He actually really did come to earth, and he actually really did the work perfectly that God set out for him. And what's the point of all this? That Jesus is legitimate enough to save. That Jesus is legitimate enough to save. I hesitated using that word. I tried to find another word because legitimate is something we kind of throw around like legit. Like it's just, but use it in its purest form. Just give me that wiggle room, right? He's legitimate in the sense that he has the pedigree. He fulfills all of the prophecies. He did everything that he was supposed to do. He is the proven Savior. He really is the Savior. He really is the Messiah. He's legitimate in that way. And so by way of application, first encouragement we have is this. Jesus is, of course, legitimate and the only legitimate Savior. We can take encouragement, church, for us, for Christians, that he really did save us, that he really did do the work that we needed to be forgiven of our sins. And think of the practicality of this truth. There's the practicality of God being faithful to you. The practicality of being faithful to save you and sustain you. The Apostle Paul simply says in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Is God faithful enough to save me? Yes. Is God faithful enough to sustain me? Yes. What could be an example of that? Look at Jesus. Look at what he did and who he was. But also... 
The prophets of old saying that this Messiah, the horn of salvation from the house of David, what will he do? Look again at the, the words of Zechariah and Luke chapter 1, 71 through 73. He says they will save them from their enemies and from the hand of those who hate them. He will show mercy and remember the holy covenant God that or the holy covenant that God made with his people, that they will be his people, and he will be their God. That they might have a mission. Zechariah goes on to say in 74, because we've been saved by him, we will serve him in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Jesus is faithful to save us from our ultimate enemy, which is death. Christmas is a beautiful time. It's a joyous time. But some of us, for some of us in Christmas, we're reminded of the loved ones that we have lost. Every Christmas kind of, we feel that. We feel that loss. We remember that person that's not there. Whether that person, we just lost them this year or whether we lost them years ago, we feel that loss. We're reminded of death, even in Christmas. And in this, be reminded that Christ is strong enough and legitimate enough to save us from our ultimate enemy, which is death. And Jesus, through his glorious resurrection, defeated death for his people. Those who are his will spend eternity with him, will be reunited with our loved ones. But he also promises to defeat our enemies. And the church of Jesus has many enemies in 2023 America. And 2024 doesn't really look like we're going to get less enemies. But the church, we need to be encouraged. We need to be reminded that Jesus is strong enough and Jesus is legitimate enough. And we place our faith in him. Jesus kept the covenant. The covenant that God promised to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 that he would make them a nation, that all the world would be blessed through him and through his family, and Jesus fulfilled that. And Jesus is faithful and legitimate to empower us on our mission. That's also what Zechariah said. We don't just sit around like the frozen chosen because uh, that we have been saved and now we do nothing. No, he says now we serve. Now because we have been saved, we serve him. And we serve him without fear, notice, because he has saved us. We take simple encouragement from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We look at the faithfulness of God through his son, Jesus Christ, the one, through, or the one that the prophets of old testified about. He came to save us from death and our enemies, to show us mercy in keeping his covenant promise to empower our mission. Jesus is indeed legitimate enough to save. Not only is he legitimate, he is merciful he is gracious and full of compassion. And that's where Zechariah ends up this morning. Look at verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. For a moment, Zechariah turns his attention back to his own son, his son John the Baptist, saying, you, you will be the prophet of the Most High, son. He declares that they will call you the prophet of the Most High. They will go before him to prepare the way. And indeed, he did this. We see this all over the Gospels. We know the story of John the Baptist. He fulfilled what was prophesied about him. In Matthew 3, we see in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah even furthermore, when he had said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his way straight. But specifically, what will John the Baptist be telling them about? Back in our passage in Luke 1, verse 77 says that he will give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Later on in Luke, we read this, which puts all of this together perfectly in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into a region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Not only did John the Baptist do what he was supposed to do in proclaiming that Jesus would be here, John the Baptist did what he was called to do by proclaiming forgiveness through Jesus, repentance. The whole point is that Jesus came to provide the forgiveness of sins that we, only, we all need and only he can do it. Luke goes on to tell us this as well in verse 78. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God. See, he compares the tender mercy of God to a, a sunrise. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you're waiting for the sun to come up, whether you're driving to Florida all night long or whatever the case may be, right? You start to see it coming up, and you're like, oh, thank God. The, that light, that warmth that breaks the morning or the, the night and shows, shows the light that breaks the darkness. We put all these pieces together. John the Baptist will prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah, by proclaiming that he is coming to provide forgiveness for our sins and to bring reconciliation. Why? Because our God is a God of mercy and compassion. He pursues those who are lost in sin and who sit in the darkness. And so third point is this. Jesus is compassionate enough to save and Jesus is strong enough to save, he's legitimate enough to save, and he's compassionate enough to save. He cares. And we all know at Christian, as Christians even, during Christmas, not everybody thinks Christmas is a happy time. And in fact, sometimes Christmas kind of intensifies some of the hurts, the conflicts, the anxiety, the darkness that he says. The reality is that even with all the joy and the lights of Christmas, there's always shadows of darkness lurking around the corner for us all. And maybe in those moments, this would be a great passage to come back to, where we can come back to this passage and we can look in verse 79 and says, no, Jesus came, the compassionate, merciful Savior came to give light to those who sit in the darkness. This is the reason Jesus came, to express the compassion of our God. He sees that darkness. He knows what you're experiencing, and he sent Jesus to address it. He sees our pain, and he works to resolve it in Jesus Christ. God self-described himself to Moses at the burning bush. We read it in our Old Testament passage this morning. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is our God, church. Our, our God is compassionate and slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But God just doesn't automatically pardon the guilty. He's truly compassionate and slow to anger, but he just can't gloss over sin. What kind of, what kind of 
uh, fair judge would that be to just look the other way with sin? He can't do that. He has to punish sin. And that's what Exodus goes on to say. He said, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Jesus was that way for the guilty to be cleared. Jesus was that way for us to be forgiven. Sin is not just swept under the rug. It is dealt with by Jesus at the cross. And there can only be two ways for sin to be dealt with. Either it is dealt with by us in hell for eternity, or it is dealt with by Jesus Christ on the cross in our place. And we can be forgiven. We can experience the compassion of God, but it comes down again to faith in Jesus Christ. The very first sermon Jesus ever preached was 18 words. He said in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So, so here's my appeal to you. This is the real meaning of Christmas. And this is, again, where it gets personal. We all have to do something about Jesus. In the back at the welcome table, there's a little book called Christmas Uncut. And if you're visiting with us, or members, if there's any left after the visitors take them, please take them. But in that book, this is the question he asks. What are you going to do about Jesus? Every single person has to, has to come to that realization. Because you can't ignore him, because he actually did exist. He came. That's what we're celebrating today. What are you going to do about Jesus? History tells us he existed. The Bible, God's word spoken through the prophets like Zechariah says he existed. What are you going to do about Jesus? Because here's the big idea. Here's what Jesus came to do. Christ's coming provides salvation for his people. Christ's coming provides salvation for his people. In this Advent, we've looked at a few portraits of the Christ, who he was and what did he do. Christ's coming initiates the gospel. He sets this plan into motion in an unbreakable chain of events that the Lord God designed to redeem. Christ's coming personifies the gospel. Jesus really did come as God in the flesh, but also as a human being. So Jesus understands what it's like. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, yet without sin. But Jesus knows our weakness. Jesus understands what it's like to live in a sin-soaked world where the darkness comes every once in a while. We said that Christ's coming declares the gospel. It's not just empty words. There is reality behind it. The reality of what Jesus actually did in his life, in his death, his resurrection, his ascension. This is our Jesus, church. This is the Jesus that we celebrate today. This is the Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. That Jesus is strong enough, legitimate enough, and compassionate enough to save. Because Christ's coming provides salvation for his people. And so if you're here today and you're one of his people, when you have made that decision to trust Christ for salvation, to take him up on his word of why he came, rejoice this Christmas. Rejoice that you really are saved from your sins. Rejoice that there is nothing that can snatch you out of his hand. Rejoice that there is no darkness, there is no grief, there is no death. Not even death will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Rejoice that your sins really are forgiven and you really do have a reconciled relationship with your creator. But if you're not yet one of his people, 
perhaps grab a copy of that book as a gift to you. And I challenge you this Christmas, really sincerely ask yourself, what am I going to do about Jesus? What am I going to do with this man who existed that we all celebrate, that the whole world stops? Everything changes. Decorations change. Songs change. If I hear Mariah Carey on the radio one more time, everything changes. Everything goes into this Christmas pattern. Why? It's because of him. What are you going to do about Jesus? He truly came to provide salvation for his people. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of the prophet Zechariah that we have written down, recorded, and preserved for us today. That we can read it. That we can have your Holy Spirit who is present with us right now in this room. And I would ask, Lord, that that Holy Spirit would impress this message upon our souls. Whether it's one for encouragement as someone who is in Christ. It's one to comfort the grief of sin, loss that sometimes we feel at Christmas, that Christmas reminds us of. You would encourage us. I pray even for those who are sitting in the darkness right now. And we're reminded of the words of Zechariah. That's exactly why you came, to bring light to those who sit in darkness and guide our feet on the way of peace. Let us rejoice for those who are in Christ and for those who are not. Lord, would you put your Holy Spirit upon them in such a way that they, they earnestly and sincerely consider, what will I do with this Jesus? We pray for eyes to be opened. We pray for hearts to be softened. We pray for eyes that would see the message of Christmas, that Christ's coming really did provide salvation for his people, and that you would draw many to faith this Christmas as we celebrate as a, as a culture and as a community. We are reminded of why you came, and we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.